Hello and welcome back to the Tapping Up podcast with myself, Daryl, and as always, Ian. We've had a little hiatus due to the uh, least reliable of us deciding it's okay to go on holiday with his missus and neglect the podcast once again, may I add. Uh, rest assured, he's been informed that if he does it again, I'll be finding a different a random angry man off the street to replace him. I'll get on to asking how you get where was in just a second, Ian. But first, we have some very important news to attend to. Tapping up podcast. That's right. The Tapping Up podcast has officially turned one. It's the one year anniversary of the first ever Tapping Up podcast episode. And also, coincidentally, it's our 50th episode. We just want to say a huge thank you for everyone who's listened and contributed over the past year. And as long as me and Ian don't get sick of one another anytime soon, here's to the next 50. Uh, it's a good job you kept that uh, opening on the down low from me because I was said, what a stupid way to start playing a little happy birthday. <laughs> but said that, I'm sat here with a little pony birthday hat on and my little whistle kazoo for birthday. So uh, equally, but yeah, no, um, I'd like to hope that uh, there's at least another 50 in the bank. And I'm sure everybody would, I hope everybody's enjoyed the 50 so far. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say if we listen back to the first one now, We've come a long way and um, hopefully we've got a lot better. As uh, as I always say to you, you know, get 1% better each time. And I think um, we've come a long way from the first uh, edition. But here's to the next 50. I mean, you say that. I didn't go and listen to it first. This one. I was going to listen to it just to see what our Premier League predictions were of last year. But obviously that would be depressing more so for me. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was recorded on... Your iPad. I don't think we had any mics at that point, so it was recording an iPad in an office with a cleaner in the background. Uh, yeah, Hoover. Yeah, halfway through, there's just <laughs> the Hoover going on, uh, and obviously we. To be fair, we got we got mics relatively quickly. I'm sure we only did maybe three or four, maybe on my on my iPad before we uh, actually got mics and tried to make ourselves. Uh, step up a little bit in the professionalism and the sound quality but um yeah I definitely uh we've definitely come a long way but equally in the same as you um I can't be asked more than anything to listen back to the first one but um yeah I think we've got iteratively better which is you would expect and um I hope the listeners have enjoyed the last year's worth of uh episodes and what we've made up for in increased professionalism we have also seen a decrease in maturity, I think. In the, the most recent episodes, there's been a lot of back and forth banter. Um, quote Has there really? I, I certainly <laughs> don't feel any less mature than we did when we started. I'd probably say I feel even more immature. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, it's been good fun. We both enjoy it. Um, you know, hopefully the listeners do. It's sadly, to say, the, probably the best part of my week getting a chance to discuss things that I love uh, and give our genuine, unfiltered opinion. So, um, yeah, and I can't, I've got to be honest, it's come around quick a year, hasn't it? But, I mean, it wasn't the best part of you last week, was it? Because you, you absolutely sacked it off and uh, went down south. Yeah, so I, I went uh, on a little trip down south in uh, a camper van. I borrowed off my mate. Uh, someone described it, a few of my mates, but I sent him a picture as something swampy the eco-warrior would live out of because it looked like a monstrosity. Uh, and it pissed down for the whole fucking week. <laughs> so 
this week, ever since, it seems to have been absolutely sweltering heat and lovely. Uh, and the majority of my time, as opposed to doing a lot of the things that me and uh, the missus had planned, like a surfing lesson in Cornwall and a few things like that, were basically spent in the boozer because of the pouring rain and then watching uh, the iPad in, in the back of the van of an evening. So, um, yeah, what certainly wasn't the greatest holiday I've ever been on, but um, an enjoyable rest uh, from work uh, nonetheless. And the worst episode of Bang Bros I've ever heard of. Uh, I mean, it had a decidedly rapey look, the van. Uh, <laughs> if I pulled up to you and was like, would you like a lift? As a hitchhiker, there's no way you'd be getting in. I'm going to tell you that for sure. But um, yeah, nice to have a little break. And uh, I think it actually didn't, I mean, it's been, as you say, a fair, probably the longest period, actually, ironically, in the the, uh, the year we've been doing this since we did an episode, I think. But um, we got let down by uh, our stand-in Mark that did an episode when I went away before, didn't we? So shout out to Mark. Thanks for uh, letting Daryl down and Thanks all of our fans. nothing. Uh, um, and yeah, and that's the last time you, you'll be invited on as the guest host. So <laughs> fuck you, Mark. He'll be listening to this like, yeah, I got a shout out. Um, we've got quite a bit to cover then because of the fact that you, you swanned off for a little bit. Uh, should we start with UFC 291? Yeah, and I mean, most gutting for me, obviously, I always go on about it. I love the fucking BMF. BMF is, as we've said before, a bit geeky. My uh, home screen on my phone and whilst this is all happening, I'm in the back of a shitty um, Mercedes Sprinter van, completely unable to watch any of it. So it wasn't until I, I got home that I managed to actually catch up on the fights. But um, obviously, we also missed all, uh, I think, just because of a lack of time in all of the, the episode we had planned before this, where we were going to build it up and obviously discuss uh, pr- the preview of it. So um i mean obviously let's start with the main fight uh in terms of the bmf title it was uh justin poirier versus uh sorry dustin poirier versus justin gagey numbers two and three ranked in the lightweight division um obviously the current bmf title who would subsequently retired was masvidal and that was fought at welterweight uh this was the second fight against the two uh, fighters, uh, five years in between the fights. And just as a quick recap for any listeners that hadn't seen that, uh, the first fight was won by Poirier by a fourth round KO. And I think it actually is one of the fights that we'd done previously on a bonus segment where uh, I certainly had Gagey up on the scorecards and Poirier pulled out the knockout out of nowhere, really, didn't he, in that first fight? Yeah, we did cover it on a, a previous uh, bonus segment. Um not that I remember what the bonus segment is because we haven't done that in a while either. Yeah, but, yeah, we uh... need to. We definitely need to pick that back up. But um, I mean, I saw in the build-up watching it when I got back that uh, Gagey described, which I thought was a brilliant quote: "This fight was going to be a car crash for the ages." Um, you know, their respective records: Gagey's twenty-four and four with nineteen KOs, uh, Poirier twenty-nine seven and one, and holds the record for the most KOs in the lightweight division. Uh, with eight. So uh, on the face of things, it was always going to be a good scrap. Um, I mean, if we look at round one, obviously it was a relatively quick fight, but round one, um, both start with leg kicks. I thought the fight was being fought um, at range, both sort of tentatively 
uh, aware that probably boxing is Gagey has some nasty kicks, but equally tends to finish people with his punches. And uh, it, I think both were fully aware that, um, you know, they didn't want to get into a, a firefight in terms of punches. Um, interestingly, uh, I heard in the commentary that Charles Oliveira, obviously former champ, uh, and rematch in Islam coming up had said Gagey is the hardest puncher he'd ever fought. Um, and ultimately, um, I gave the first round 10 9 to Gagey. But one yeah, thing it, I thought. Definitely a Gagey round, I think. One thing that was quite interesting I noticed is every time Gagey was throwing a particular head kick, he seemed to be ducking. I don't know if you clock that in terms of a, 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 a tactical point. And uh, I noticed the corner of Poirier had picked up on this and said, look, every time he goes for that head kick, he's ducking down. So if you can read that, that leaves you clearly up for for the knee, uh, potentially to, to knock him out. Um, one thing that I did feel that seemed um, quite apparent in the fight is Gagey for some time had a deviated septum. A lot, a lot of fighters obviously get broken noses, but he got this fixed a little, uh, a couple of fights ago, and it seems to have dramatically increased his cardio because he's able to, to breathe through his nose. I know that sounds stupid that when you've got but a deviated septum does create a, a massive difference in terms of your breathing and affecting the cardio. And I thought uh, Gagey looked a lot fresher uh, in that first round. And as you say, uh, you could see the difference, I think, from the, the nose surgery. Um, moving into the second round, we had Gagey coming out swinging for the fences. Um, his, his corner had obviously built him up and said that was definitely your round to, st- uh, you know, carry on with what you're doing. Um, and then out of nowhere, massive head kick from uh, Gagey. Bang. Floors uh, Poirier. Uh, one hammer fist follow up and it's all over. Herb Dean stepped in to uh, call it off. Yeah, Leon Edwards dimmed, didn't he? But I, I thought it was quite funny in terms of uh, Herb Dean sliding in because it's probably the fastest I've seen him slide in in a long time. And he, he kind of hit the people's elbow on him, sliding like it, the rock. It, it, I mean, good refereeing in that respect, but I did like the move. I agree with you, the nice slide to get in between to stop <laughs> any further get, uh, the damage. But you're quite right that it, when the, and, and they showed this back um, during the fight, it was literally exactly the same finish that Leon did against Usman with the, the infamous head kick where he threw uh, a, a punch on the opposite side, followed up with a head kick. And it was literally that exact finish just on the opposite side in terms of which side he, he head kicked him, but scarily similar finish. And um, you could tell, even though it wasn't a fully clean kick because Poirier did have an arm up and, and sort of a quarter blocked it, still the power that Gage has with those kicks just laid him out flat. So... Um, evens a series at one all definitely lines up further down the line, a trilogy fight, I would say. And I thought it was really nice to see the respect between both of them at the end. They were clearly, uh, a lot of respect between the fighters. Uh, and another nice touch I thought was that they got, um, the former BMF champ Masvidal that we've just mentioned to actually award Gagey the belt, which I thought was a nice touch. Just before we go on to what's next for Gagey, because I think the answer is fairly obvious anyway, but is there a more deserving person in the UFC at this moment in time, so on the active roster, of holding the BMF title than Justin Gagey? Not a single chance. It's absolute. The definition of a bad motherfucker. Could not agree more. And, you know, Masvidal, to some degree, was, 
but not in the same way as Gage is. You say ne- never a, a more deserving title to a fighter on the roster and would be my... If you had to, t- if I had to call out who I would give that title to, if it was just an award, 100% it would be just, uh, just engaging. So totally agree. Never been uh, a more deserving uh, fighter. Um, to your point, I think it, for me, it lines up an interesting point of surely Gagey gets the, the, the winner of the, the rematch, which I forget, I think it might be 294 um, or 295. Yeah. Is it 294? That 294. there's the rematch of Islam versus Oliveira. And you would think it that, you know, uh, Gagey's put himself right as the, the next contender. The interesting point that we've discussed um, would be, does that match up if it happens? I think personally it will go the same way. So I would say Islam wins. Does that fight if it's against Gagey? Is that for both the lightweight title and the BMF title? Well, we discussed this. I think, again, we're talking from a business point of view. It would make more sense to keep them separate just because obviously you've got two titles there and especially with the big 300 coming up next year if he does win that title what do you do because you're then either having to fight and obviously we're talking massively hypothetically you're having to fight for both titles there one I know you love it but for me is a gimmick title and the other the actual title which people want so personally I don't see it happening anyway because I don't think Obviously, he's lost to Oliveira before. So even if Oliveira uh, avenges his loss, I think he loses that. And I think Islam probably beats him as well, as much as I do like Gagey. I still think that we probably see Gagey fighting for the BMF on 300 against someone. And I think we'll come on to some of the speculation about his next opponent um, if we're not including the, the title in this, in terms of the uh, the lightweight title that is, in just a second. But yeah, I... I don't think he wins, unfortunately, against the winner of them too. I think he he's very good. I love watching him fight. I just don't think he's as skilled as the top two of the, the lightweight division at this point in time. I just think Islam's a bad matchup for him as well. That smothering uh, grappling game that he's got, he's you know he, uh, he does have very good wrestling defense, uh, Gagey, in terms of keeping him off, uh, keeping people off him. But you know, keeping Islam off you is 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 very hard. Now, if you're Islam, and by the way, I, I totally agree with you. I think they will keep them separate. But if I'm Islam, I'm 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 trying to get that. I'm saying, look, I, if I fight Gagey, I want both. But Islam, to me, the style of fighting that he he does that that smothering top game, a ground and pound sort of very um, Khabib esque, doesn't quite deserve to be in. For the BMF title, if you ask me. So I agree with you. I think they'll keep them separate. And as you say, we'll come on to maybe who Gagey might fight for uh, for that title in the future. Well, I mean, the rumours in terms of who is going to get, if it isn't the, the title, which it, it certainly is. Um, I know we're speculating. There's nothing being confirmed, but let's be honest here. We know how this goes and we know how the uh, UFC works. A lot of rumours on Twitter because... Our old friend and the biggest pull in UFC history has chimed up once again. Obviously, the Ultimate Fighter is still ongoing. If I'm quite honest, I haven't watched the last few episodes. So I don't have a clue what's been happening recently. Uh, I know we were trying to keep updated on that, but it got exceptionally boring. 
doesn't necessarily look to me like McGregor's going to fight Chandler. And I think we both agree on that. I know Dana White has said that that is still happening, etc., etc. blah, blah, blah. Could you see McGregor versus Gagey for the BMF at uh, UFC 300? I, I definitely could. I mean, you 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 called that to me um, when we were talking before the podcast. I think it's a great shout. I definitely could see it happening. Um, I mean, again, I, I, I love McGregor. Um, I, personally, though, the only thing I would say is, again, it's the money uh, fight. It definitely would bring in the viewers. It's exactly the type of fight that they would put on a, a centennial card. But with Connor's recent record of, of one and four, I think, I think it would be hard to argue that he's actually deserving of fighting for the BMF title. As much as I love him, uh, and he's certainly back in the day when he was laying out Aldo and Mendes, you, you would say he was a bad motherfucker and he'd be in that mix. Um, I, I personally, as much as I love Connor, I think it's, you know, with his current record, it's hard to, to justify putting him in against that. But business always makes... Uh, uh, you know, comes across and the pay-per-views and I think you called it spot on. I think that's a great shout that I could see despite what Dana says, uh, McGregor not fighting because I can't see any way McGregor isn't going to be on 300, uh, the same as I think John Jones will be to, 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 to stack that card up. And that would make a lot of sense. And I'm sure if Connor was to fight Gagey on that card and you had John Jones Let's say maybe Pavlovich, if he gets through Stipe, possibly Aspinall, that easily probably breaks all records for pay-per-view ever, I would say. Yeah, and in all honesty, if are we, I think we're, we're not in the minority at all. I think we're fairly in the majority about what we think is going to happen in terms of McGregor and Chandler. As much as, obviously, the usual would be tough goes on, it would then get organised later down the line and it would be the big event. I think the closer that you get to UFC 300, I don't see Chandler McGregor being, you know, one of the, the top sellers on its own. I don't think you can sell a card based on that, even if you've got John Jones on it. So I don't see them fighting at UFC 300. So the longer this goes on, and I still don't know what happens with the testing pool, in all honesty, I haven't had a look into that. I don't know if he's now in the testing pool and I know you've got to be in it for a certain amount of months before you can fight. I see that fight being completely bypassed. And McGregor Gagey, BMF title, is money. He absolutely is. So that alongside, like you say, John Jones, um, you know, maybe Pavlovich, uh, Aspinall, maybe. Yeah, I mean Pavlovich would be the one more. Des- I think Pavlovich is certainly more deserving than, than Aspinall. Uh, certainly higher in the rankings than him, and more of a danger to John Jones. Um, I mean, you'd also probably have um, at least a couple of other title fights on there. Um, you could see um, maybe someone like uh, Patoja Figueroa, uh, maybe for the uh, um, fly. Strawweight fight uh, title on there that wouldn't surprise Edwards, me if he still has the belt at that point. Uh, potentially, that's obviously been drawn out uh, as well, and then you would expect probably a, a female title fight on there uh, as well. Um, I mean, obviously that the Shevchenko is the the major pool in terms of female stars now that Nunes has retired. But um, yeah, you you tend to find of the the main card on a centennial card certainly one hundred and two hundred. I think, you know, the main card has been six fights and you're talking at least three, if not four, uh, title fights. So, um, but to me, if you had John Joan Pavlovich, um, 
as your, your main and you had Gagey uh, Connor as your co-main, as you say, that's money in the bank. Just to go back, I feel like we could talk about this all day. Um, in all honesty, it's one of these that we could go back and forth on and there's so many different hypotheticals and I think UFC 300, when it comes, comes around to it next year, is going to be an unbelievable card and it's one of those that I'm going to force you to stay up to uh, to watch. Um, oh, don't think you'll need any prompts for it, but you definitely stay up to watch it. Anyway, you definitely uh, won't need to force me, and it yeah, may be one say. that might. I'll be honest with you, that might be one we could even do a live. Uh, yeah, double tap for that. That might be one for uh, uh, an extra special event like that. So maybe we do uh, a live one for that. But yeah, you're right. Uh, you certainly won't need to force uh, me to stay up to watch that one. I don't know if it'll be a good idea doing a live though. I'm sure, we'll be like <laughs> ten beers down. Ten, as I say, ten yeah. beers in. But well, maybe we do it, and then if it's a little bit too shady, we just don't release it. But, um... <laughs> Erase it from the internet. Uh, but yeah, so UFC two nine one. Just want to revisit one of the other fights because it was a really good card. In all honesty, nine finishes on an eleven card fight, which is you know much better than we've seen quite recently in some of the cards that the UFC has been putting on. Pereira and Blahovic. Um Obviously, Pereira making. In his light heavyweight divisional bow, um, former obviously undisputed middleweight champion, lands in his new weight class with a victory. I thought this wasn't as close as some say. I've had a look because I know you disagree with that on what other people said, and quite a lot of people would agree with yourself. I think a lot of people would be thinking that I was crazy to think that this was a fairly easy to one fight, but you run through it for us. So, I mean, Blahovic, number three ranked uh, in the in the division. Uh, po, as you say, Poetang making his debut, which, as you say, getting thrown straight in and, uh, at a very high-level opposition. The first thing that struck me was, how the fuck did Poetang ever make middleweight? He looked absolutely huge compared to Blahovic, who is a tank of a man at 205 as well. Uh, I, I thought, I, I just couldn't believe how big Poetang looked. Um, but if we look at round one, um, Blahovic uh, straight away, you can clearly tell, knows the flaws in um, Poetang's game, that if Adesanya can take him down, uh, Blahovic is a, is a high-level black belt and very good grappler, straight away takes him down. Uh, interestingly, it looked like probably the whole of Poetang's camp had probably been spent on uh, defence and wrestling uh, defence because he's such a skilled striker coming from the Muay Thai background that he does. He actually, I thought, if you notice quite early on, went for a guillotine whilst yep. um, but Blahovic is trying to take him down. It was one of those kind of, it looked tight, but never quite there that, you know, Blahovic looked relatively calm, didn't think really he was ever going to um, get it on him. And I think in those situations, a guillotine needs a real squeeze and has a real impact and draining effect on your arms. So I think Bohovic was probably quite happy with letting Pereira try and gas himself out, trying to get the squeeze on. Um, Bohovic then takes him down and gets his back and suddenly uh, reverses that with a rear naked choke on. And it looked a pretty bad spot for Pereira at that point. And I was a bit concerned for him, but he did again, showing that he'd been working on his ground game, did very well to defend, clearly been working with his coach, Glover Teixeira, who, again, is an extremely high-level uh, BJJ black belt. Um, you had a second rear naked a choke uh, attempt from um, Blahovic trying to flatten him out. But, again, very, very impressive defence to me from Pereira. 
But easy 10-9 round for Bohovic for me, first round. Yeah, agreed. Round two, um, the kicks starting to mount up from Pereira, that low, that calf kick. I mean, his kicks are so nasty. They don't... He, 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 he has this ability to make to throw them so quickly and from such close range that they don't actually look like they're oh that's not too bad but if you looked Bohovic's leg the, the the welch or the the swelling on his leg was almost immediate from the second round where they were starting to land um Blahovic again takes him down but Pereira manages to get him in his guard uh Pereira very well then uses the cage to get back up and again Further example that he's been working uh, on his ground game, manages to get back up and lands a good head kick. I thought by this point, Blahovic, who is 40, it should be said, is, is looking tired and looked like those takedowns and the, the top game that the smothering that he was trying to do was starting to tire him. And Paratang starts to unload. He lands with a big uppercut and a nice leg kick combo. Uh, he's got Blahovic pinned against the cage in a very similar way right at the end as to when he actually finished uh, Adesanya, throwing bombs and you, you, you're worried for Blahovic and uh, saved by the bell to some degree. But 10-9 Puritan for me, again, relatively clear. Yeah, easily going into the last round on equal footing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's fair to say round three, it was one all. Uh, as I say, it's very visible, the damage to Blahovic's leg. You can eat in the middle in in, in uh, uh, interim when they're showing you the corners. The corner are telling Pereira, "Look, look at his leg. Target his legs." And again, Pereira, great to see, very coachable, a moldable fighter. Obviously, is listening to them and he's starting to to, to kick away and just smash Blahovic's leg up. Um, there was a bit of a weak takedown attempt for Blahovic that was defended very well by Pereira uh, uh, and a big jab that sort of wobbled uh, Blahovic. Um, what worried me was then right, probably, I think, maybe 45 seconds before the end of the round, Brahovic did manage to uh, the take down and, and got him down. I always refer to it. And I'm sure, again, everybody's bored of this is my new phrase I use now as opposed to casual fan, which I've dropped is round stealing. And I thought it was a very close effort from Brahovic to steal that round. But personally, I gave that round 10-9 to Poetang. So 29, 28. Um, but I, robbery would be a very harsh word, but that was, that was a close fight. That last, the last, it all depended on the last round. There's no doubt. Judges, it was a split decision. So two judges gave it 29, 28 for Pereira, one 29, 28 for Bohovic. And I'll be honest, I couldn't have argued. I would have felt, I could have argued, but. I could easily have seen Blahovic winning just because of that round stealing at the end and the control. But um, I'm glad Pereira wins. As you say, he is probably now my favourite fighter in the UFC. I'm a massive fan of his in terms of what he does. Um, and on to the next one. Um, so I was delighted with the win, but I could definitely see how some people would call that a harsh decision on Blahovic's side. Well, Blahovic himself thought it were a harsh decision. He said that this was a robbery, funnily enough, using the word that you just used. Um, I completely disagree. I I think, and the interesting point that you raised there about the quote-unquote round stealing, the takedown at the end, I think, may have been enough to steal that round years ago. And when I say years ago, I mean before the rule changes in about 2012, where takedowns were 
viewed uh, more significantly. Uh, they were scored he- more heavily. And since that change in 2012, it's not quite the same anymore. So I think predating that, he would have probably stole this fight. After that, he wouldn't have done, which is why I don't think that it was as close as some people are saying. And he, he didn't really do a great deal, to be honest, when he, he, he did get him down. If he'd got him down and for those 45 seconds been raining elbows and, and, and bringing some serious ground and pound, I think you could have made a stronger argument that he would have stole the round and won it at the end there. But um, I agree with you. Once he did get him down, he just looked tired. It looked more like an effort of trying to take him down, think, you know, impressing the judges with the takedown. But um, I, as I say, I certainly scored it for Pereira, but it was close. And I could certainly see, as you say, I, I, I do disagree with you that it was very clear. I thought that was a very, very close fight. And um, I'm glad Pereira got the decision, but I could have seen it gone the other way just because of that at the end. Just on that as well, and just while we're talking about Pereira and, and Blahovic, did you see what Bispin said? So Bispin came out and gave his opinion on this shortly following. Um, a quick quote from him, I won't go into too much detail. He essentially said, I don't think it was the best performance from either man. Not kicking them while they're down, certainly not. They were at elevation, they were tired, and they were a little sluggish. They were a little sloppy, and I say that with respect. Pereira didn't look as fast, didn't look as snappy. I wonder if it was elevation, or was it carrying all the extra weight? You just don't know. Maybe it was that. Maybe he's not as efficient. He mentions twice there about the elevation. Now, obviously, this took place in Salt Lake City, and it was 4,330 feet above sea level, so quite high in altitude. I thought that it affected both men. I don't I don't think necessarily that either one benefited, but Blahovic certainly looked like he was blowing and breathing quite heavily. And I think Pereira, a little bit like Bispin said, certainly wasn't as snappy as we've seen in, in recent years while he's been in the UFC. I don't think it's to do with him carrying more weight because he's obviously lined up at this weight before, hasn't he? In, was it glory kickboxing? In Correct. Yeah, he was it was light heavyweight and middleweight champ in glory. Um, so I, I think I the don't... weights are slightly different, but yeah, he, he's definitely fought at a higher weight. I mean, I think it benefited him not having to have that weight cut. But Agreed. again, I think for the, the average person uh, that perhaps doesn't watch as much fighting as us, elevation makes a huge difference. And I remember the, the, the one that made the most difference, if I recall, I could be wrong here, but there was a fight in, I think it's Mexico City, uh, going back a few years. And it was it was certainly Fabricio Verdum. I have a feeling he fought Cain Velasquez for the heavyweight title. I could be wrong on who he fought, but it was definitely Verdum. And Verdum had uh, gone to Mexico City something like six weeks before to adjust, to train, to adjust his body and get used to fighting at that elevation. And one of the things that Cain Velasquez was always known for was an incredible gas tank. And Vadum out-gassed him, if you like, and was incredibly efficient. So I think, again, the average person like me and you, we don't ever get to go that height, that that sort of height difference. And, you know, if me and you were to go to the gym at somewhere 4,000 feet above the, the gym that we go to, I can absolutely guarantee you, we'd be like, what the fuck? We can't lift as much. We can't do as much CV. It has an incredible impact on the the cardiovascular system. So I did read that Paratang had gone two weeks before to get used to the altitude. I'm not so sure how long Blahovic was there for, but 
Um, I'll be honest, I slightly disagree with, with this thing there. I, I certainly think it had an impact on Blahovic, but he is getting on a bit at 40 and it's hard to maintain the, the speed and the, the cardiovascular ability and speed that he had at that age. But I didn't particularly feel that Poetang looked slower than, than usual myself. Just because just you mentioned Kane Velasquez there, just out of curiosity, if you and him had a wrestling match, um, what what do you think would the outcome would that be? Do you think you'd surprise him? Um, if if it was just wrestling, um, I think you'd be surprised. I think you'd uh-huh. be surprised. I think it fucked you up. <laughs> just for so any that... of our listeners uh, not in with the MMA joke, there we are talking about Joe Rogan when he brutally. <laughs> Uh, tells Brendan Sharp that he is not good enough to carry on fighting. And Daryl had not seen this, uh, and I showed him earlier in the week. And uh, it's hard to watch, isn't it, in some ways, when the way that Rogan basically tells him, you're not good enough to fight anymore. But, um, yeah, little little uh, joke on that bit there. But, yeah, it's, it's for any of our listeners, uh, you, you can find that little section alone on YouTube. I would suggest having a look. But how brutal Rogan is to him, as you say. I think you'd be surprised. <laughs> He'd fuck you up. And he, he's, you just see Brendan Chubb almost look like he would cry. Um, I, but, I'm going to yeah. find that and I'm going to bang it on our Twitter after this just because, like you say, I'd never seen this before. Um, we were on Joe Rogan's podcast and it, it, just to see his heartbreak. <laughs> it's one of the most famous bits on there, but we, we've talked about it before. You need people like that in your life that are prepared to be, tell you the truth. It's a hard conversation to have. Uh, as a manager, sometimes you have to have difficult conversations in, in real life. Now, maybe you can put it in a slightly less brutal fashion, but I think I'm a big believer in, in being truthful with people and letting them know. And I think Rogan had may have done it in a, what came across as a very harsh manner, but ultimately had... Um, Brendan Sharp's health as his, as, 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 you know, looking after him as his best intentions at heart. Um, and, but yeah, definitely bang it up on Twitter because it's definitely worth a watch for anyone who, uh, who hasn't seen it. I think Joe Rogan has spoken quite recently um, about a Lewis and, and Brendan Sharp fight and, and told he, him, he said, he's going to die. Don't do yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And he, he brought up about that, um, what we are talking about in terms of the, one of the most traumatic moments of his podcast <laughs> was convincing him to stop fighting. So funny, so funny. It worked, it worked out well. And again, Rogan is certainly one of the things that Rogan alike looks after his boys. Rogan definitely helped and gave Sharp a big stepping stone into the stand-up comedy world. He he knew that Sharp had other options uh, open to him in terms of after fighting, which some guys don't. He's quite a funny guy. I, I don't personally find him hilarious as a stand-up comic, but he's quite a funny guy. He's quite good on podcasts. He had he's obviously got the fighter in the kid with Brian Callen, so he had avenues. And as I say, I think as much as that came across as brutal, it was well intentioned on Rogan's part that the advice he was trying to give him. And most importantly, it was funny as fuck. So, yeah, you know, but yeah, every, definitely everyone bang wins. that up. Uh, definitely. I mean, I think there's, there's there's small clips of it where you just get to see that small section we've talked about. And then there's the slightly longer uh, segments where, I mean, it's probably talked about for about half an hour, I think, uh, about there and it goes on. So you, I'll let you choose which of the, the clips you put up for our, for our listeners. Uh, last bit on MMA then. There are, or there were, which they seem to have gone now, but rumours of... Pereira and Prohaska 
for UFC 293 in Sydney. Which seemed a ridiculously, as soon as I read it, I was like, that's a ridiculously quick turnaround for Poetang. You know, two numbered events away from just fighting. And all right, he didn't sustain a, a load of damage in the fight against Blahovic, but that seems a very uh, quick turnaround. But um, apparently someone wasn't ready. If I had to guess, that's probably Prohaska. And I'm sure he's maybe not quite fully fit from that very bad uh, shoulder injury that he had. Um, And then also, um, I think what they were then lining up was Adesanya. The card is, because it's in Sydney, Adesanya fights out of New Zealand. So you tend to find Adesanya fights on the majority of the cards in Australia, as does often Volkanovski, who's not fighting actually this time, because obviously a bit of a a low New Zealand's very close to Australia. But um, the the next title uh, contender in terms of uh, Duplicis was also not ready because of injuries. So we've ended up with a rather disappointing um, middleweight title fight of Adesanya versus Sean Strickland. I mean, Strickland's a headline grabber for other reasons. I think we know, I I mean, we've been wrong before. I think we know how that's going to go. And obviously we'll preview 293 as it gets closer. For me, there's only one winner in that fight. But Strickland will still sell a fight and I think he'll still sell you your tickets, your PPVs, etc, etc. So I can see why he's been put up there and he's still, you know, he's on a good role. He, he's probably deserving of a fight. Um, but for me, you know... It, Is it's, he? It's I mean, he, he's... he's I had a, we, we Because we were talking about this, I had a quick look. Um, I mean, he's, he's on a two-fight win streak, but against relatively average and not particularly high-ranked opposition in Magomedov and Amanov. Uh, before that, he was on a two-fight losing streak to Poetang, who obviously most recently lost to Adesanya. And Jared, I've got to get it in there because it's my favourite nickname, the Killer Gorilla Cannonier. <laughs> so um, it it feels... It's definitely one of those ones where it's like, it's a hard sell for me that Strickland deserves that. And it feels like, you know, they wanted Alessandro on, on the card to sell it. That will definitely boost the ticket sales in Australia because he's, he's a big name out there. Um, but like you say, I, 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 we've got it wrong before. We'll probably get things wrong again, but not this time. Alessandro smashes him. Well, Helwani said, didn't he? And this, this is where it's all come from, of all these rumours. Helwani said um, that... Obviously, um, they wanted to do um, what they had planned previously. There was the injury that that caused um, that fallout previously. And then apparently Adesanya is the one who turned around and said he wanted to do Strickland. And the UFC were quite strong against that. They said that they didn't want to do it because it didn't feel like, uh, unquote, a worthy enough main event. So they they agree with you, and clearly Dana White agrees with you. They tried to go after a few other options, including the Prohaska and, and Pereira fight that we're talking about there. There were apparently some other options, but they weren't disclosed. And ultimately, they fell onto Adesanya and, and Strickland as a headline bout. So I, it'll still sell because people want to see Adesanya. But, you know, it, it's it's clearly a fallout, isn't it? Yeah, it's as you say, it's not the fight that you'd really want to see ultimately. I mean, you're saying that the only comparison that you could say is the last time we had, I think, probably such a disparity in the rankings was uh, Jamal Hill when he fought for the title. He was, I think, seven uh, and obviously went ended up winning the light heavyweight title, didn't he, before his unfortunate basketball injury. 
which led him to um, have to vacate the title. But um, so it has happened before when uh, very lowly ranked uh, opposition have surprised uh, the champ. But I certainly don't see it happening here. Just before we move on from UFC and, and MMA then, did you see Pereira's post-fight press conference or any of his, his post-fight press conference and his comments about Adesanya? Uh, I did not. So he said before his last fight, when he made weight, that he would be taking a break from middleweight. Clearly, it was getting harder and harder for him to make weight. And, you know, there's too many cuts in a short span of time. And then he moved up to light heavyweight. He actually said that he wants to do one more fight at light heavyweight. So he wants to do whoever it is that's next. He probably wants the title. He then wants to drop back down to middleweight just to fight Izzy. He said that because the one won at middleweight, it wouldn't be fair to do it at a different weight. And he thinks there's nothing fairer than making that trilogy at middleweight. I just, your opinion on that, because I feel like dropping down is significantly impacted him. And I don't think it would be a good idea personally for him. I think he should stay at light heavyweight for the foreseeable now. Definitely, totally agree. And again, that certainly strikes me. That is not, that is one that I would not be in the slightest surprised to see at um, 300. Um, but I'll be honest, if I was if I was Poetang, um, I would be trying to get that fight at like middleweight, uh, uh, sorry, like heavyweight. And of course, from Izzy, that gives Izzy the chance to also, which he's already done and ironically lost to Blahovic, the chance to be a champ champ. So yeah. there's, there's definitely an upside for, for Izzy to take it at the higher weight. Um, I, I'll be honest, having watched and, and seen how big Poetang looked in that fight and we know how brutal his weight cuts are. He's getting on a bit. I think he's 35. Um, I wouldn't want to be t- taking that cut again. But respect, you know, all due respect for him in terms of saying we've had all the fights before at middleweight. It should be at middleweight. But I'd much rather see that at light heavyweight. I've got to be honest with you. Football's back, Ian. Finally. Woo. Woo. Championship football for me. Woo. Lower league football. Because that's what everyone wants to watch. Not, not dog shit at all. Cardiff and fucking... Is it switch or whatever dog shits in this league? Um, I think we'd just skip right over lower league football for now. Give me your Premier League predictions, cheer me up a little bit. Let's talk about a, a higher league. So, um, I mean, you can't, I mean, we're going to come on to some of this later in terms of transfers. I can't, given the, the magnificent run they went on at the end, and we know the quality City have got. They've only just gone and made their team even better by signing undoubtedly the best young centre-back prospect in the world in Gardevoir. So, I mean, that is a scary defence in terms of Gardevoir and Diaz. So, I'll be honest, I can't see anyone but City winning this, uh, winning the title. Uh, second, I've got to be honest, as much as it pains me to say it, I think they've done some pretty shrewd work in the transfer market this year. I think as last year, Arsenal will come second. Um, uh, no bias, of course, intended here, but I see Liverpool coming third and improving certainly on last season. If we can keep everybody fit, not lose Diaz, and you know that the midfield reinforcements that we, we we've uh, made, however, still lacking a defensive mid, which we might want to come on to and discuss uh, later. I see coming third. And I've got Man U making up the top four. I almost have it the same. I mean, City will, will win it again. They've got 
as you say, the best young prospects at centre-back in the world at the moment. It's a really good buy. I'm not going to say it's a shrewd buy because of the amount of money that they've thrown at this. It's it's clearly a, a buy that only a club of their stature can make at this point in time. Um, and it, in all honesty, it shows the gulf between a team like, and I'm going to say no disrespect, a little bit of disrespect, of course, uh, between City and yourself at this point in time, because they can afford to go and smash out, you know, 100 million nearly on uh, a player just about every season now. Whereas Liverpool, who aren't necessarily extremely far behind the rest of the league, you know, spending 60 odd mil on, on Slobosai is seen as quite a lot of money to, to reinvest. Um, Haaland is obviously going to help him run away with it again. I don't see him falling off at any point soon. He's only going to get better, which is a scary prospect. Arsenal, I have second. Absolutely, the, some of the signings that they've made. Obviously, we're talking about 100 million. Declan Rice, um, I think he'll be outstanding. He's deserved his move, and he's probably one of the best centre defensive midfielders in the world, other than Rodri. I have Manu third. Okay, and then who do you have fourth? Not Liverpool, I would guess. Aston Villa. Who's been on the crack pipe? I have Aston Villa qualifying for the Champions League football. I'm telling you, uh, it was between yourself and Villa. I think Liverpool have made some very good purchases. And I'm just having a quick look here. That's what we're doing on my phone. Uh, It's not that I'm bored here. The Caicedo um, saga will end tonight. So by the time that this podcast is released, we'll probably know where he's going. So we're recording this on the, the Thursday night. So... Why is that just out of interest? How, how is why do you, why is there speculation that that will be concluded tonight? I've just got a message off his agent um, because we get obviously a lot of of insider information from all these famous people. They want to put it through the Tapping Up podcast. Um, his agent is Fabrizio Africano, and he has informed me of it. No, he said that Brighton want an end to the saga tonight. Essentially. Uh, whoever it is, they want the most money and apparently that's what they've said they're not bothered who he goes to at this point in time whoever offers the most is going to get him it's a two horse race between yourself and uh, Chelsea as it sounds so we'll definitely know if you get him, I'll put you into fourth I mean, I, I, Villa will, Villa have been very shrewd. Obviously, they were very good at the end of last season. They made some good, made, you know, definitely strengthened their team with some shrewd purchases this summer as well um, I, I can see a shout. I think they'll be top six. I, I wouldn't disagree. I could see them being last season's Brighton, if you like, in terms of that surprise package that nobody playing quite attractive football and, and doing well. Um, I'm not quite sure they're... It's, it's, it, if there's a weakness for me, it's Ollie Watkins. Pretty decent player, but he's not going to get you 20 goals a season. And if you if you put an absolutely lethal striker in their team... I could certainly argue, see your point, and, and and wouldn't maybe disagree with you. But if there was a, I think he's a very decent Premier League striker for any sort of team top six and below. But he just doesn't get enough goals for me to fire you. If you're going to get top four, you usually need someone hitting you twenty goals a season or twenty goals in the league to get you up. Just to check on that, you've told me a new a number of times in the last week or so, probably more than that that Darwin Nunes is going to have a fantastic season because of how he's been playing in pre-season and his contributions. How many goals has Darwin Nunes got in pre-season? So he's got four goals in five games, 
And in each of those five games, he's only played 45 minutes. So okay. he is, the goals that he scored as well are two of the four that I've seen are very, very sweet poachers goals. So it, all right, it's preseason. They're shit teams in Germany. I'm not going to argue with you on that point. But he took a year to acclimatise at Benfica. I think he got something like eight or nine goals in his first year, then 32 in the second year. And I think he will put a lot of the doubters, um, you know, surprise people this year. And if he is starting at number nine, obviously it's basically between him and, him and Gakpo for, for that role. I think he gets 20 goals a season this year. I think he will turn it around. So if I tell you that Ollie Watkins has scored four goals in pre-season and has looked extremely confident in the games he's played, why is Ollie Watkins not getting 20 goals this season? Um, what, if you look at what he got over the last few seasons, now I've, I've got no numbers in front of me, but I'm guessing over the last few seasons, I bet he hasn't got more than 14, something like that somewhere between 10 and 14 goals for the last two or three seasons in the Premier League, which is, is nothing to be sniffed in total. At. Is that in total? Or no, no, per season. season, per season. So I don't okay. think, I don't think I might be wrong. But I have a feeling last year was his best year and he got 14 goals. 15 goals not, last season. It's not to be sniffed at, but I just don't think he's a high enough level for me to fire them into the top four. You know, man, you have, uh, you know, um, I can't remember how he says his name. Hoyland um, is is highly rated. Didn't score a ton of goals for Atlanta. Has to be said, I think he only got seven or eight, but has been referred to as the new Harland, which I think is very early, but he does share some some similar characteristics. So, and with Manu, obviously, they also had, uh, you know, if Rashford continues his scintillating form from last season as well, they've got uh, an impressive strike force. Um, I, I just think Watkins is just a, a shade below what you need to get into the top four. Um, just before going to the relegated predictions, then I'm I'm really interested this season to see how Newcastle cope with European football. Obviously, they were a surprise package last year. They did extremely well to get into the Champions League. I'm excited to see them in the Champions League, a proper old-fashioned club with an old-fashioned support. I'm sure that obviously they'll have got some new fans as success always brings and there'll be armchair fans, etc. You know, you weirdos on Twitter with like Saudi Arabian flags, etc. Um, but do you think that they're going to fall off significantly this season in terms of their league position because they're focusing on European football or? They haven't. I mean, they, they, they've made some signings, obviously, but they don't have the deepest squad. You tend to find that a lot of teams, I think sometimes that sort of, surprisingly get into the Champions League, like you might argue they did last year, don't quite appreciate the toll it takes on the squad, the travelling, you know, on a Tuesday or Wednesday, particularly if you get a bad draw where, you know, you're, you're, you're Eastern Europe, you're in Kazakhstan or, you know, somewhere, Russia, somewhere, you know, far away uh, that you've got to play. Um, and it does take its toll on its players. And I don't think from what I've seen, they've made enough purchases and they don't have the squad depth to maybe manage on both fronts so I see them slightly if they do decide to go for you know see how far they can go in the Champions League I personally think that that will probably affect their um, Premier League um, performances but be interesting to see they've obviously got some very good players they've made some relatively shrewd signings as well so 
Um, it will be interesting to see, but I, I don't think they'll be able to replicate on either front the success they had last season, personally. Who's going down? Um, I think it's got to be Sheffield United, for me, are going to be bottom. I think that you would argue they were struggling anyway, and then they've gone and basically sold the two best players. So they are really struggling. Uh, I would say that they, they would be the favourites. Um, I'm going to say Luton. I think even though Luton might be one of those teams that uh, surprise people and Luton could easily be one of those, a bit like Sheffield United were uh, a few years back, that kind of surprise team that do very well, stay up the first season and then second season syndrome go down. But I'm going to say Luton. The one that changed my mind and actually changed my my, my notes as uh, we were doing it this week is I've gone Wolves because... Um, They've sold some 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 very good players. Obviously, they've lost Neves, who's arguably their best player. They sold their their focal point of their strike force in terms of Jimenez, even though he was not exactly a, a goal machine. They've lost Traore on a free. They've not really re- replaced those players, and then because of that, they've gone and lost uh, Locatelli uh, and replaced him with Gary O'Neill, who, despite doing a, a relatively good job at Bournemouth. I think is disastrous. So I, I I think Wolves and I would quite fancy uh, knowing the odds on, on them going down because I think they've put themselves right in the danger zone with that appointment. Um, Sheffield United bottom, I agree with. Wolves, 19th. I've got Forest going down. Um, I think Luton, you called it absolutely spot on. I think Luton will surprise quite a few this season. A lot will look at them and think... Uh, Shithole Stadium, tiny. They've got loads of renovation done to it. Have they got to extend it um, from what I saw as well? Because they don't have enough. I think I saw something that like they might have a couple of games away to start the season with because of the the work in the you know the Premier League um, uh, restrictions or what you know uh, obligations that you have to have for the stadium. So I think I did see that the first few games they've got are away whilst that work is carried out. And but they they're going to go one or two ways. They're either going to be beat. Derby's record and go, be the worst team ever <laughs> and go down, or they might surprise people. Um, but if they do surprise people, they'll definitely go down the following year, I would say. I think that Sheffield United are probably more likely to break that record. The way that they've been, like you say, they've sold the two best players uh, immediately. Obviously, they've sold Sander Berg uh, or Berger, however you pronounce it, and they've sold. Um, is it uh Ndai Ndai to Marseille? Yeah. Um why? I don't it's lunacy. It's the same thing that Norwich did in the year that ironically Daniel Farker took them up. Sold the best players, didn't really make any uh purchase. I think they sold Buendia in that season, and then just went straight back down. But no one were left surprised by it. Everyone were like, Well, yeah, anyone could have told you that. Why would you do that as soon as you go? You've got to invest quite heavily to stay and become a mainstay in that league. Otherwise, you you know, you mess it up and then you go straight down. But yeah. Well, look I, at I Wolves. Think... I mean, Wolves are the weird one. You I mean, they got a ridiculously good deal in terms of 55 mil for, for Neves. I mean, if they, I, I've got to be honest, I, I, I haven't been keeping a super uh, huge eye on them and their transfer activity. Have they actually replaced him with anyone? I mean, you get 55 mil in, even if you're trying to run a business, it's not like they're close to falling foul of financial fair play. You'd, you'd, especially when you've got a manager of the quality of Lopatelli, you'd give him 40 mil and say, go out and get a couple of decent 20 mil players and improve the squad. But they just don't seem to have, and they seem to be 
thinking we've got, you know, they've got a Traore, I know, could be very hit and miss, one of the most inconsistent players in the league. He's gone as well. They've lost their focal point, as I've already said. I, I, I think they're in real trouble. So has he officially gone then? Traore. So is he just left on a free and just still he's, he's on a free club? and he hasn't he hasn't signed for anyone yet, but he hasn't re-signed a deal either. But I think he's said he won't be re-signing with them. So I, I don't think it's been announced where he's going to go on a free yet. But uh, I would guess he'll turn up at Saudi Arabia. Would be my yeah, I'm going to say almost certainly. But they technically, I suppose they've spent uh, about. 50 million so far because they brought in Kuna, didn't they? That was an obligation to buy that they had to uh, from Madrid. I know they brought in Bubakar Traore from Mets and Matt Doherty. Didn't he come in from? Yeah, he was on a free, free. on a free though. As yeah. on a free, obviously, he'd been, uh, he was, he was there before. I think, didn't he go to Tottenham? Then, yeah. weirdly, Atletico Madrid. So uh, I forgot about that they had they'd spent the money on Kuna to be honest because of as you said the obligation to buy but he hardly exactly set the world on fire last year did he a couple of no, goals of maybe you know and as you say as much as he's a relatively decent player he's not a goal machine and he's not someone I'd be pinning my hopes on scoring enough goals to keep you up so um, I think they're in real trouble. The rest of their squad has been decimated as well. I mean, it, I appreciate that some people will sort of disagree with some of these uh, as, as main uh, losses, but Conor Cody, obviously, he was at, on loan at Everton last season. That seems to have gone really strange because clearly he was uh, a mainstay in that team. And then the last few years, for whatever reason, he's had a fallout. He's gone to Leicester now and has just picked up an injury by the sounds of it, which is obviously good for Leeds. Uh, Raul Jimenez has gone to Fulham. Now, again, he was one of those who was a bit, pretty much of a mainstay in the Good Wolves team and then lost favour and then sort of fell out and then has, has gone to Fulham and I think he's got a few in pre-season. Nathan Collins is a really strange one. Brentford went quite heavily on him, didn't they? Spend like 20-odd like mil, 22 mil, yeah. mil. It was crazy amount um, of money for him, yeah. But then that adds to the point that you've made about how much money they've brought in and how little they've spent. I, I think one of the bigger signings, as I say, is Matt Doherty from Madrid and I think they brought in Tom King from Northampton who was like a 28-year-old goalkeeper on a free so I have no idea you can see why the managers walked out and I think Gary O'Neill has quite a, a significant task on his hand yeah and I think he's probably one of those people that maybe as you say definitely did a good job at Bournemouth uh, underrated in some ways but um, with a decimated squad I'm not quite sure he's the man I would want anyway to be to be keeping me up um, I think they, I mean, they they probably didn't quite realise the quality of the manager that they had in, in Lopetelli and, and how well he did when he came in last season and turned the season round for them. But um, he's definitely a manager of, you know, when the, the, the sack race comes around and the first Premier League sacking is made, he's certainly someone that whoever that happens and you always get a team that unexpectedly make a bad start he would be top of my list on a, a relatively decent team to be trying to bring in as manager. Top transfers then. Um, I know we, we haven't concluded the window and I'm sure there's still some twists and turns to come. Obviously, something quite big in terms of, of Harry Kane. We'll come on to that in just a second. But top tri- five transfers of the summer window thus far, go. So, I mean, in no particular order, uh, if I'm honest, I, I put this together and I'll be honest with you, um, we'll what we'll do is at the end of the transfer window, we'll maybe do a recap because it'll be interesting to see if they stay the same. Because, like you say, and we'll come on to it, the Kane one would certainly go in there for me 
um, if I'd, uh, you know, that had been announced a bit earlier. But I've got, um, as you say, in no particular order, Rice to Arsenal. I think he is a complete mid uh, upgrade to their midfield in terms of Thomas Partey or Xhaka. I think he is the type of player that um, will only improve when surrounded by better players, as we see when he plays for England. Um, he slightly reminds me of Stevie Gerrard in that when he was given the captaincy of West Ham, that took his game to to another level. And I'm, I'm on. If I, if I think is it Odegaard who's captain of uh, Arsenal at the moment? But if I was uh, Arteta, I would think. If for me, I would put Rice in as vice captain straight away. I think he's got that kind of leadership quality, and I think he really adds to their midfield. Um, Jude, Jude Bellingham, um, you have to have in there. I mean, we've waxed lyrically enough about him generally uh, and his ability and the, the sensible head on his young shoulders that he has to Real Madrid. I think he will go immediately in. And I see he's been playing in pre-season and even scored a, a lovely goal against Man U. So he has to be in there. Um, I've got, to, again, slight bit of bias, but I'm going McAllister to Liverpool, given the, the, the quality of the season that he had last year. Uh, and one of the big things for me with this is the price that we actually paid. Given at some point they were talking crazy figures like 70, 80 million, I think we actually got him for about 35 million with a fair amount of add-ons. It'll add some creativity and some steel in the park, uh, in the middle of the park that we need. Obviously, we do still lack a defensive mid, which is a bit of a worry, um, but there's still time for, for that to be sorted. Uh, got to have Gardevong to City, as we've already mentioned. Best young centre-back prospect in the world for me. And you pair him with, with Diaz. I think that's by far and away the best centre-back pairing in the league. And finally, um, disappointing slightly on this one because he's got injured. I understand he might be out for a while, but I've got Nkuku from um, Leipzig to Chelsea, who has had a stellar record in terms of both goals and assists over the last couple of seasons. I think he will add a new dimension to their attack when he's back and fit. First three you've mentioned, I can't disagree with at all. I think Declan Rice, as I said earlier in this episode, has been deserving of a big move for quite a while. He's, he's clearly been quite a good servant to West Ham. And I think a little bit of a, a perfect swan song for him to go out with European silverware with uh, with West Ham. Jude Bellingham, clearly, for me, I'm, I'm Jude Bellingham's number one. Um, I actually think, as silly as it sounds, what we're like 88 plus 25 in add-ons or something, I think that's probably a bargain. I think Jude Bellingham will almost certainly become one of the best footballers in the world in the next few years. He's only 19. He's outstanding. And I think that's kind of something that I want to reiterate just because I know that it'll sting you a little bit more. As I mentioned, that he is absolutely fantastic. If Liverpool had got Champions League football, would he have ended up there? We'll never know. We'll never know. Probably, but you know, I never know. Uh, possibly. And I mean, again, obviously, you could argue with the money that we spent on McAllister and Slobberzai, who I do also think is a fantastic sign in. You could stick that sums together, and actually, we could have afforded Bellingham. So it is massively disappointing for me, particularly as he is uh, English as well. But um, yeah, that's the, that's the one that, that got away uh, for me. Um, Gardevoir, clearly, again, you've got that spot on. He is the best young centre-back in the world. It's not like City are short. 
with options at centre-back, but him alongside Diaz is pretty much terrifying in terms of a, a centre-back partnership. And I think want his deal for like 20 million less than what his reported release clause was, want it close to 100. So they were saying 100 and it was just over 80, I think, in the end, which yeah. again, I think, given his age and the qualities he's displayed already, it's hard to say when you're talking eighty odd million that that's a bargain. But in the same way that you talk about Bellingham, I tend to agree with that. I am going to throw two different ones out there, though, for my top five: Kim Min Jai to um, Munich. I think he's an outstanding centre back. He was very, very good for Napoli. It was around forty million. Obviously, he's now the most expensive Asian player in history. Um, made all the more sweeter by Man United being strongly interested, strongly linked, and then missing out. Clearly, Bayern have the the great pull. I think that's a fantastic signing for them, and I think he'll do very, very well for Munich. And my number five is Sandro Tonali. I think, obviously, from Milan to Newcastle, what is it, about £60 million in total with add-ons included. Um, there's some dispute, I think, how much they're actually going to receive for him, but it's probably going to be around 52 million up front and 23 it's no secret how good tonali is it's a more of a surprise to see him at newcastle at this stage of his career but you know newcastle are on the way up and i think this signing just exemplifies that i definitely can't disagree with you on that one and originally when i wrote up my original five tonali was in it so it was only probably my bias of mcallister uh, pushing him out, but totally agree with you. Absolutely outstanding player, Tonali, and a real uh, coup for, for Newcastle to get a player of his quality. Looks absolutely brilliant. Him and Gamares as a, as a double pivot in your midfield is is probably, again, um, up there with a, two of the best sort of two pairings in that um, those roles in the league. So, yeah, can't definitely agree with you on that one. The only thing that I just want to mention just before we move on from that, I'm more curious in terms of your answers. I know, obviously, there probably is a little bit of bias in terms of McAllister being put in there. Why McAllister over Slobosai? Because I feel like Slobosai is probably the better signing. Uh, Price was was taken into it in account for me in some ways for this because I think of how well um, uh, McAllister did in the... He's proven Premier League quality for a start, so he played in the Premier League for a few years. So you would, he, he's not going to take that time to adjust. Uh, Slobazai has had a very, very good preseason. I think he's got four assists in five games. So looks exactly in terms of the creative force that we were perhaps missing. And a lot more from what I've seen of the highlights of the, the preseason games, more of a, a, a leggy player up and down than, than I perhaps gave him credit for. I thought he was maybe more of a, a flair player that you gave the ball to, but his his work rate has impressed me certainly in preseason. But obviously, he's uh, far more expensive in terms of price. But I just think McAllister, as you say, for me, it's more taking the price into account and the fact that he probably isn't going to have to adjust. I do wonder if Slobazai coming from Germany is going to t- be one of those players that might take a season to adjust to the physicality of of the game, uh, and m- we might not see the best of him immediately. Whereas McAllister, I think we will, you know, will hopefully pick up from where he was last season. Just on transfers then, final bit. Kane, Bayern Munich. We've discussed this previously. Um, We weren't certain whether this was going to get done. Still not certain if it's going to get done or not. They seem to have agreed a deal between 
Munich and Spurs for the transfer of Harry Kane. And it seems to be in his hands now as to whether he wants to leave or not. He's got a year left on his deal. You'd think Daniel Levy would be pushing him out of the door, in all honesty, at a fee of, or a reported fee of around 100 million. Do you go if you're Harry Kane? And do you think he'll go? If it's me, I go for sure, because you put him in that Munich team that's world-class, put him as the focal point. I mean, if you think about how many, again, we we talked about he maybe got slept on his goal record last season compared to Haaland. Wasn't that many goals behind him in a woeful team compared to City. Um, He will score a, a bucket full of goals in Germany if he did that. He, you're also guaranteeing yourself at least a league winner's medal, maybe a cup medal, even potentially a Champions League winner's medal. Uh, the only thing in my mind that tells me that he won't go is if he's got his eyes set on Shearer's record. And what you informed me today when it seemed like a deal had been agreed is that he was verging at staying at Spurs, which shocked me. And surely the only reason that can be is that he then goes on a free transfer next year. I don't think it would be that much of a secret, but if he goes on a free, he's going to probably go to the scum, isn't he? And if you have another good season at Spurs, he has a good season at Man U, if not a couple, you know, two or three on the deal they'll get him on, he will break Shearer's record. So the only thing in my mind that says he doesn't go is does he value being the Premier League's top goal scorer and taking that record over championship medals. And there's an argument that if he waited and then went to Man U, Man U carry on improving at the rate they did under Ten Hag, they might be in with a chance of some silverware then. But I think that that's the argument for me. Does he want to be the, the, the personal accolade of the top scorer ever in the Premier League and beat Shearer? Or does he want titles, medals, which he would undoubtedly get at, uh, at Bayern? I mean, this is the question and this is the revolving debate that me and you have had a number of times. It's all over social media. It will go on until this is sorted. Obviously, you've got Kane should leave Spurs for trophies, but then trophies with Bayern Munich don't actually count because Bayern Munich win it all the time. But then he's a sellout if he leaves Spurs. You know, But then he should stay to, to break the all-time Premier League record. And it, it just goes on and on and on. And Harry Kane is one of if not the best Premier League striker of all time. And that's an argument to make, and a number of people will try and discuss that. He is fantastic at football. His career, regardless of of medals, will obviously be revered. My argument is more to the, I think he should deserve, or not that he should, he does deserve to get a medal and he should go and get medals and trophies, etc. because a player of his quality shouldn't end his career without any. But then I understand the, the Premier League record and whether that is better. And we, I mean, we discussed this a little bit. Is that the equivalent to the BMF title in UFC? Him obtaining or breaking the Premier League record, he doesn't get anything for that, but he does in some sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like that, you know, that you say the BMF doesn't mean anything. Like, I mean, we've had this argument back and forth. You've always said, no, nah, you don't think it means shit. It's a gimmick title. I disagree. I think most fighters would love to have that. And I mean, get uh, Poirier, even in the interview before the fight, said, who doesn't want to be able to say, I'm the baddest motherfucker on the planet? 
So, and, and in, in the same way of being a top goal scorer, you may sacrifice those league winners' medals, but from a personal glory and accolade, Kane could easily set down a record that could not be broken. A lot of people didn't think Shearer's would be broken. Kane, I think, is, is he 29, 30? He carries on at hitting 20, 25 goals uh, a season. Let's call it for the next four seasons. He smashes Shearer's record and he probably puts 20, 30, 40, 50 goals on top of that. And then that is an, you know, a, a, an almost unbreakable record. And he goes down forever, potentially, in, in the hallmarks as England's top ever goal scorer. He's already got the record for the national team. Does he then want to go on and, and, and take that record in the Premier League? So I, I can certainly see that argument that that in itself makes up for maybe not having the titles and the silverware that you seem to favour. And in you in our discussions before, you've said you'd choose the silverware. I, I can totally agree with, with Kane's argument. I mean, especially though, because football didn't begin in 1992. And this is one of the other things that I don't think we've really got into. The Premier League record, which Alan Shearer's set, isn't the Division One goal scoring record. That would be, is it not Jimmy Greaves? Has Jimmy Greaves got some significant, like 350 goals and he played for Spurs? So I, I feel the whole thing is just, as with the BMF, a massive gimmick. I would much rather see him go and win a title, go and get some silverware. He deserves it. Forget these silly records. Yeah, and again, it's a, an eternal debate. But again, I don't know what the record in terms of the League One record would be. But it wouldn't surprise me that if Kane carries on at the rate he does and he does that for another three or f- at least four or five seasons, which is certainly a possibility, he could take that. So he I could can't. Take... No chance. So Kane's got 213. Uh, Jimmy Greaves is just a look, 357. There's no way that he's going to score another 150 goals or whatever it is in that short space of time. 30 goals a season for five years? Not unthinkable? Not at his age. Not not enough left. Um, But let's end the football segment on a really, really happy and cheery subject, especially for me as a Leeds fan. Wilfred Nonto is um, a spoilt prick uh, by the sounds of it from what's been reported. Uh, Obviously joined Leeds five-year deal, September 2022. Uh, so last year, of course, makes his Premier League debut uh, a couple of months afterwards. In fact, it might be the month afterwards. I think it was um, against yourself, funnily enough, in a 2-1 win against yourself at Anfield. Came on at like the 70th minute or whatever. Um, the deal that we paid, I think, was about £3.7 million, something quite small. There was a sell-on clause of about 15%, I think, from anything, any profit that we get. It's come out last night. He refused to play or refused to be even in the squad against Shrewsbury in the first round of the Carabao Cup. He doesn't want to play for Leeds anymore. He really has his heart set on a move to Everton. Like, what? Who is advising him? And we had a look and I was talking to you about this earlier on as well. His agent is Saniolo's agent, who also did very, very similar at Roma, refused to play, you know, gets a, a big money move to Galatasaray, and now he's looking like he might be coming back to the Premier League and or going to the Premier League with Villa. So this agent clearly has a say in it. What on earth is 19-year-old Wilfred Nonto doing and how does he find this is an acceptable way to go? And if you lead, do you just turn around and say, you know what? Fuck you. 
we're not selling you unless someone gives us the money that we think that you you um, a value of, and you can sit and rot in the reserves for all we care. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. We've had this discussion plenty of times before, and I'm a big proponent of that sometimes. You've got a five-year deal, you fucking stay. If no one pays what we want for you, you stay. But equally, you're cutting your nose off to spite your face in that situation because if he doesn't play, his value potentially goes down, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and you don't quite um, get the benefit of what you might, you know, get if you were to sell him. But... um, it certainly doesn't put yourself in somebody, it doesn't look good, uh, you know, from a visual aspect to be taking that stance. It doesn't make me as a team that we might be interested in Nonto say, right, I really want to buy him because he's a stroppy little bastard. And surely the better way to go about it, as, as we talked today, was get on with things. There's still plenty of time left in the transfer window. You could knock, be knocking him in for leads for the rest of the month and... You know, someone comes in with a ridiculous offer and these fans kind of say, well, we couldn't say no. Or equally, because of his age, that the decent thing, if it was me and personally, what I would say is, look, right, I'm going to give you till January. If we are challenging for uh, promotion and we're in the mix in January, I will stay. But come the summer, if we don't go up, I'll, I'm, I'm off. However, if we're not doing so well and we're languishing in 12th come January, um, I'll leave. And I think most Leeds fans, even, you know, the most stringent sort of hardcore fan couldn't really argue with that if that was what he came out with and said. So, um, yeah, he's he's gone about it all wrong for me. And I mean, he's a young kid, not that that excuses him, that he's getting terrible advice from his agent. And his agent deserves a smack in the face, uh, I would say. You know what, as well, I'm going to controversially, and it's going to sound like, ironically, I'm throwing my toys out of the pram a bit. I don't think he's that good at this point in time. I think he could go on to be a fantastic player. But for Leeds, where we are at this point in time, if you can go and get 20 to 25 million for him, and that gets reinvested on a 20-goal-a-season striker, it's far more important. You've got other wingers at the club currently, and they're up for speculation. You've got Harrison, who's got a release clause. Sinistera, who might have a release clause. You've got Somerville, who I don't think has a release clause, thankfully. But we have better wingers at this moment in time. Again, Nonto might go on to be an absolute world beater. And he showed some glimpses of brilliance in that Premier League season, and our, our final Premier League season. But he went missing at the end of last season when you, the going got tough and when you really needed him to, to kick on. Um, some of the managers didn't favour him and you've got to ask yourself why that is. There were rumours that him and Somerville were being a bit untoward behind the scenes, to put it to put it nicely. Um, and, you know, Leeds fans have got quite hysterical about this. I, I haven't. I, I don't feel like this is that bad of a thing. I, it's a dickish thing to do and I'd like to see him leave. I don't want him to see him stay. But I also feel that this hysteria, hysteria has come from you know, the whole thing with Max Ahrens that's happened on the same day, ironically, where he's on his way to have a medical, he's halfway through the medical and allegedly pulls the plug on the medical because Bournemouth goes up us. And ironically, I think Bournemouth have just announced, um, in fact, they have, it's just come up as a notification on my phone. Thanks for that Twitter. Oh, X, fucking Elon Musk. Uh, so Max Ahrens has just signed for, for Bournemouth. And I think if that doesn't happen, Leeds fans aren't really that arsed, in all honesty. I think it's more of a, well, fuck you then, get out of the door. That's that. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I still think that you would um, be better off keeping him um, and that he would contribute. You know, um, I do think that you've obviously watched far more of him than me, but I think you could get in that. In that yeah, he, he's incredibly, you know, he's built like a tank. He's incredibly strong for a young, um, relatively small player. I think you could get away with playing him up front. And I certainly think he's probably better than Bamford. So I would play him in that position now that you've lost Rodrigo. Given You're better than got, Bamford. Yeah, that might be debatable. But you have <laughs> got, as you say, you know, you are blessed at the moment before the window ends with, with Somerville, with Sinisteria in terms of other wingers. Um, so I, I just think he's been badly advised. I think, again, you know... It, He's 19, he's a young kid, he's a man, he can make his own decisions. But um, if I was his agent, I would be saying we're going about this all the wrong way. You know, play, put yourself in the shop window in the right way, i.e. by doing outstandingly well for the next four or five games before the window closes. Someone comes in with a £50 million bid, most Leeds fans, as long as, you know, they then think, right, we'll go out and spend 20 mil on a striker that maybe can get us 20 goals and fire us up. I don't think would be too upset with him. Yeah, exactly. And and that's how it should be. And you look at Rafinha is a perfect example of this. Rafinha, at the end of the season in which he almost single-handedly kept us up, it almost was certain and it, he was going to go at the end of that season. Him and Calvin Phillips, loads of speculation. But they both got their heads down. And again, especially Rafinha, and decided, you know what? I'm going to make sure that this club is still in the Premier League they're all going to wish him well. And I, I don't think there's one Leeds fan, really, that has anything negative to say to Rafinha. He's had an outstanding season at Barca, um, certainly in the second half. Took him a little bit while to, to get going, but in the second half, definitely. And, you know, every time you see him play football, you think he's a delight. And that's what Nonto should do. But clearly, 19-year-old kid, his agent's probably his ear, caused loads of issue. He's put himself in the worst possible position now because if they can't agree a deal to sell him, no Leeds fan is going to want to see him back in this team or the majority, sorry, of Leeds fans aren't going to want to see him back in this team and he's going to let himself rot in the reserves, is he? And, and not get any international football and ruin his international career? I can't see it. So he's, I think he's made a rod for his own back. Yeah, I think he's, he's um, you know, not done well. The only thing I would disagree with you on what you said there is completely dip away from Nonto, but I don't think Rafinha did have an outstanding season. He certainly picked up. I mean, he was getting pelters and, you know, the, the Barca fans were on his back for at least the first half of the season. He, he significantly improved and he may well be one of those players that, again, takes a while to acclimatise and could prove me wrong this season. But um, from what I saw, he looked a little bit like a fish out of water, Um for certainly majority of the first half of the season. He did, as you say, pick up. But in terms of numbers, I don't think he actually, you know, goals and contributions-wise, eight goals, seven assists, something like that, was it? You know, in 30-odd in games, which, you know, isn't appalling. But in a team, the quality of Barca, you would perhaps think that he would be doing a little bit better. But he's still got time in his hands. And as you say, he went about things the right way. And in, in a similar analogy that when Barca came in for everybody knows my favourite player, Suarez, you kind of, it's hard to deny anyone a move to Barca or Real Madrid, isn't it? However well they're doing, they are ultimately probably the two pinnacle clubs to play for. And if someone gets their head down and, and ends up wanting to go to those teams and they offer you the right money, it's very hard to say no 
stay at Leeds or Liverpool when you can be playing in front of 110,000 at the new Camp. Terence Crawford dominates. Ninth round KO or TKO it was on it. Errol Spence, undisputed welterweight champion. Best boxer in the world at the moment, pound for pound. He's got to be there with it, him, him or Inoue. Must be. Um, I mean, I've got to hold my hands up as much as this was a massive fight and I was looking forward to it. I didn't realise that it actually came on the weekend that I was away. So again, I'm in the uh, the camper van. So could only get, uh, woke when I woke up, saw some, some updates about... Um, just happened to randomly wake up in, for a piss in the middle of the night and it was about round six. So I was keeping an eye on uh, Sky Sports sort of live round by round commentary. Uh, and from everything I've read afterwards, I have seen the knockout just look like a masterclass from Crawford. And, and the really surprising thing just looked like the complete gulf in skill levels between the two, considering how highly rated both both boxers were. But you, you obviously watched the fight. Um, is that about right? Well, first of all, you're absolutely spot on. So Spence Jr., highly rated. And regardless of this fight, he's still very, very highly rated. Still a very, very good boxer. The gulf in class between him and Crawford. I, I thought Crawford were going to take it. And I actually, you know, I'm not, not lying here for once. I had it in my preview that he would knock him out. Um, I think I had it, funnily enough, around the 8th. So I'll, I'll have a check on that. And I might put it for the ninth, you know, because I'm just really good at these predictions. Um, but this wasn't a 50-50 fight in the slightest. It took no time at all for Crawford to get in the groove. And he just picked Spence apart. It, it was scintillating from start to finish. He's obviously now moved to a 14-0 record. He's got 31, record, uh, 31 knockouts on his record. He's become... Uh, the second boxer of all time to clinch back-to-back undisputed crowns in two different weight classes during the modern four-belt era. Who's the other one? On the spot here. Canelo. No, it's Clarissa Shields as the other one. Um, so, again... He'll uh, go down as an all-time great. I, I yeah, he's outstanding. On him. He's one of those people that does not in any way, shape or form get the credit that he deserves. And undoubtedly, when his career is done, should easily go down in that, you know, greatest top 10 boxers ever, you know, if not slightly higher, considering what he's done. But for some reason, I don't know why he just doesn't ever seem to get the the attention. I mean, he he he's a fighter's fighter. He goes about his business. He doesn't smack talk. He's not like Mayweather. He doesn't play the hill. He doesn't deal with the fucking silly nonsense bullshit like Fury does, which gets views and eyes on him he just goes about his business beating the fuck out of people which i for for one love he's not bothered about the attention you know he's a man of guile and all about his craft and um as you say uh very impressive knockout and i agree with you in my notes for the 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 episode we didn't ever do i had him winning as well um i didn't give it a, a round i've got to be honest um but i i thought he would win um and yet um, it seemed very um, easy for him by the end. Um, yeah, and I would have been interested. It's it's one of these fantasy fights, and it's like um, Rocky Balboa with the sixth one, where obviously Rocky's you know at the end of his, I mean, he's retired, and then he comes back, and there's that weird ESPN simulation against the modern day fighter. Um, I think it's supposed to be like a Mayweather clone, but I would have loved to have seen Mayweather versus Crawford because. 
I don't think there is anyone that would have run Mayweather closer than Crawford. Um, even with, obviously, the, the comparisons of had he fought Pacquiao in the, the correct time and, and he hadn't waited until he was past his, his prime, I think Crawford would probably beat them both. And I know it's, it's a massive thing to say. I appreciate that. But the way that he imposes his will in these different fights, to, to watch him dismantle Spence so easily, it, it was frightening. So knocks him down in the second, the left-right combination. Dominates him every round since. Uh, seventh, he drops him twice. Uh, first one comes with a, a counter to the head and then obviously doubles up on the right hooks during the, the final seconds to get the third knockdown of the, the fight and the second in that round. Ninth round starts. It just looks like he's going to just destroy him. He starts connecting, unanswered punches, um, all landing. There's <laughs> just no defence whatsoever. And then the referee just stops it because of the punishment. And uh, Spence Jr.'s face afterwards was horrendous in terms of the damage done. It's first loss in Spence's career. It's the first time he's ever been knocked down. Obviously, all three times happening on, on the, that fight night. But Spence will come back from it. I'd just be very interested to see what happens next for Crawford and, and see who he takes on next because I wouldn't want any piece of Terence Crawford as he is at this point in time. Yeah, and I mean, maybe he goes up again to challenge for and, and, and go for a bit, like you said, maybe try and become the first person. I'm not sure there's ever been someone who's gone three weights undisputed. So maybe that's a record that he might go for, you could possibly argue. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Mayweather, because one of the, I, I did see after was some very, what I th- thought were quite strange comments, were that he'd come out and he said that he thought that Spence should be fighting at 154 or even higher. Um, and I, I couldn't quite really make sense of that, whether Spence is sort of one of Mayweather's boys and Mayweather's trying to make excuses for him or whether Mayweather knows something that we don't, that maybe Spence has to do a, a brutal weight cut to get to 147 uh, and that took something out of him. But I, I, I did note those comments with a bit of, because um, he's not a massive guy, Spence. It doesn't look to me like he should be fighting a, a great deal higher weights. I've got to be honest. It's close to his natural weight, I think, is what Mayweather's saying. So he, he does do quite significant weight cuts because he's, he's moving. I think it's two weight classes, isn't it, that essentially Mayweather is arguing he should move up, which seems like quite a significant jump, but that is close to his natural weight. So whether he's saying it's it's a, a Pereira situation, I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think anyone would say that before this fight, and no one was saying that before this fight. It was all very much, you know, Spence... Is fantastic at this weight class. He is probably the best. All of a sudden, gets dismantled, and the next thing is, you know, where do I go from here? Do I step up? Do you wait until Crawford potentially steps up and then clean up the division? Because, as we say, Spence Junior isn't a bad fighter in the slightest, and he's certainly the second best fighter in that division. He's just nowhere near the top anymore. Yeah, as you say, interesting where where, where both fighters go next, really. Uh, given that this was the the big one that people had been looking to see, um, be interested to see what happens next. The big one that you've missed, and I know that you'll be gutted. I'm sure you've watched a number of replays here. I can already tell by your face you're excited to talk about it, and I can already tell you know what I'm going to be talking about. Nate Diaz, Jake Paul unbelievable performance from Jake Paul. He is one of the best boxers I have ever seen. Dismantles a UFC legend. You know, bring on the title belts. What a fighter. I mean, I didn't watch it and I wasn't going to watch it even if I had been uh, available to it. Um, 
it was always set up, to be honest, that he was going to win. He's the considerably larger guy. Uh, as much as you hate to say it, he's obviously got considerably more pro boxing experience than Diaz, who's never boxed before. Diaz has always been a, a volume boxer, not a power puncher or a knockout artist. And as much as I hated to say it, I always thought Paul would probably win this fight. Not necessarily easily, but he he, he would win. Um, the only bit that I did see, again, just sort of reading up afterwards what had went on, is that um, uh, Diaz uh, put a sneaky guillotine on at one point. And uh, <laughs> there's just a part of me that just wishes he'd held on for another seven seconds or so, which is all he would have probably needed to put him to sleep and just seen what would have happened. But um, the, the interesting thing where this is where someone like Paul's fucking mouth gets starts to get carried away of himself. There's now talk that he, and he actually put this forward, as I understand it, would challenge Diaz in the PFL in MMA. Now, that, that is a completely different ball game. And you're talking about someone who might be quite big and might be able to punch. Diaz is, you know, a, a Caesar Gracie black belt. He's going to take him to the floor and within less than a round, if Diaz is feeling in a generous mood, which he doesn't usually, he's going to choke him out. If you get the nasty Diaz, which is what I love, he's going for a limb and he's snapping at one of those arms or giving him a knee bar that he's not recovering from. So the fact that Paul has the balls to say he thinks he could do the same in an MMA fight, guy's living in a fucking dream world. Well, the difference being the gloves and it's the the padding, so to speak, is the difference between if they had that fight, you know, let's say it were bare knuckle just for a laugh, then Diaz probably knocks him out. But Paul knocked him down in the fifth round, which was... Um, a little bit of a surprise. I thought that there wouldn't be any knockdowns. I thought it would just be a points victory. The The actual scorecards were, you know, significantly one-sided. I think it was 97-92, and then the other two being 98-91. The guillotine was hilarious because he does lock it in just in the corner, and then you think, is he actually going to fully lock this in and choke him out, which would have been boxing history. He doesn't. He lets him go, and then he walks around the ring and starts celebrating um, Nate Diaz, which was even funnier. And then, like you say, at the end of the fight, when they're having the interview, it's Paul that extends the offer to him to fight under the PFL franchise. He basically says, you know, give me $10 million and let's run it back. You've come into my um, sport and I'll come into yours. And I'm sat there thinking, boxing's not your sport. (laughs) Disney Channel is your sport. Not only that, say you give me $10 million. For a start, isn't Paul, uh, Diaz isn't signed to any promotion. Isn't Jake Paul fucking got some ridiculous title like head of fighter acquisition or some, or some bullshit, bullshit like that yeah. to do with the PFL? So, no, if, if anything, he's part of the organisation that's going to be paying Diaz for that fight. So it just sounds to me like someone who's just a bit adrenaline pumped and carried away. But, you know, even his trainers should be saying, dude, what the fuck are you doing here, man? You are going to get fucked up if you, t- you know. Um, I've got a question for you. I mean, how 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 well do you think Diaz would do in a fight with, um, or um, Paul would do in a fight with Diaz? What like an actual we're in, in an MMA, MMA fight? Do you think um, you'd be surprised? I think, you'd, I think you'd be surprised. Yeah, I think he'd surprise you. I think you'd be surprised. <laughs> I think he'd fuck him up. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, a ridiculous thing. It'd be Paul over in a round, wouldn't it? It, it would oh, be a really not, not even a round. The moment he gets him down, as you say, it, it, he is more, to be honest with you, of a, of a choke specialist. Diaz uh, going for the back and getting the rear naked chokes in, but he is a nasty bastard as well. And if I was uh, Diaz, I'd be going for an arm bar and I'd be trying to break his arm before he could tap. Well, let's stick with the Paul brothers then and the Paul family because there's been a new announcement, and I, I can't remember if this is before. You went or not? Did we talk about KSI versus Tommy Fury getting announced? Because that's officially been announced and it's on the what the, the Design and Misfits series are calling the Prime Card, because of course they are. Uh, so it's October the 14th. Uh, he's obviously saying oh, KSI is going to knock out Tommy Fury, he's going to end his career, and then after that he's going to retire because he's beaten the final boss and all this nonsense. It's now also been announced on the same card because this is the prime card. Logan Paul is fighting. So he's coming out of his Dewey Dewey background where he's signed a contract. Have you seen who he's fighting? Uh, uh, Mr. No Show, isn't he? Um, <laughs> the man Dennis. that must have had fucking eight fights announced and never made. So uh, I, I, I can't see any way that fight happens given uh, Dennis's record of not fighting when fights are announced. He um, said, but I it, did see that that was announced. I have to be honest. He's because you follow it because you absolutely love this shit. He said specifically on his uh, Instagram, uh, did Logan Paul, I doubt this little parasite will show up, but if he does, I'm going to erase him from existence. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's obviously going to be the best selling pay per view uh, of the year. Uh, it's going to show UFC up, it's going to show up the heavyweight division, and I'm sure that you'll be watching it intently. Uh, yeah, I don't even want to waste my breath on talking about this nonsense, uh, if I'm honest with you. And I mean, the only other thing we've got to cover on boxing really is probably as nonsensical in terms of relevance of fights is obviously this weekend is now AJ uh, Hellenius after yeah. Dylan White uh, for the third time in his career, if I'm not mistaken, has popped four roids. Good old Ian well, Has it said specifically what he's... Uh, tested positive for because I know it was an adverse performance, performance enhancing drugs is all I read. I don't think they've given a specific, a bit like with AJ when he popped for clomiphene or sorry, uh, it was clomiphene, I think, for AJ. I can't remember what it was for uh, Connor Ben. If that was, was that has AJ ever well. popped for it? I didn't, has AJ ever posted tested? I'm, I'm sure he did, but didn't he get away with it because he said it was something to do with an inhaler? I'm not mistaken. I'm, I'm sure AJ once tested potentially, but managed to get an exemption because it was to do with asthma. I could be making that asthma. up, but I'm sure there was exactly like you're a professional boxer that goes 12 rounds. But I'm sure AJ once had some substance, but managed to maybe maybe popped for it, but he had a medical clearance for it. Maybe that's what it is. But uh, I mean, has he been eating loads of eggs? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> too, too, uh, too many omelets for breakfast, but. I mean, Hellenius, the last time he fought, it was an easy fight for... Um, uh, it was the sort of fight for Wilder to get his career back on track, wasn't he, after Wilder had lost the, the three fights to... Um, no, he's, he's fought more Fury. recently. No, he, he obviously got spat out by Wilder, but then he has In had a comeback round, fight. one round, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it? The first yeah. round he got laid out. But then he had a comeback fight against Mika Milen, I believe his name is... Um, I think it was last that massive weekend. name, that uh, massive uh, name. But um, last the weekend. only thing, <laughs> the only thing, I mean, that's crazy. The fact that he's got passed <laughs> to 
for it to fight last week a week out is just ridiculous. The only thing is, is that will be interesting is from AJ. Obviously, the AJ Wilder has been sort of talked about. Uh, I know it never works this way in terms of we talk. We often talk about MMA maths. This would be boxing maths. Is does AJ put him away first round? You know, if he doesn't put him away in the first round, particularly after the fact he fought last weekend, then he's going to be compared to that he's not as good as Wilder because Wilder did put him away in the first round. So, uh, I mean, it's going to be it's an easy knockout for AJ, and it's just it's just it's just a matter of time. I'd be shocked if it goes past two or three. Yeah, I've got walkover. It's shades of the old AJ fights, you know, when he were an up and comer and he hadn't got a title belt as of yet, and it were like we're putting him against. Or Charles Martin that he got a title from, and it was just like an absolute domination um, with them type of fights. And I think it'll be the same here. Um, I feel like comparisons to if he doesn't knock him out in the first round, he's not as good as Wilder. They're definitely going to be made, but I always feel like those comparisons are absolutely nonsense. Who cares? If he knocks him out, does it really matter what round it is as long as he doesn't have any trouble with it? No, um, no, and it doesn't translate, but as you say, that that's the natural comparison. Is of course it is, yeah. two, two people have had it, and that's the same opponent how well did they do against somebody else? So uh, I, I agree with you. It doesn't really mean shit and it has nothing. It doesn't mean, let's say he knocks him out in the third round. It doesn't by any stretch mean that Wild is better than AJ, but it, particularly the fact he's coming off a fight last weekend. <laughs> if you're AJ, you've got to be thinking, I need to go out and just blur him away um, yeah. to, to, you know, to try and get some kind of hype and get, you know, career, some people back interested in seeing AJ fight. Because the next fight, we all think, and has, again, all but been agreed, is AJ Wilder. So you would like to see him spark him out very, very easily and set up a big heavyweight clash at the end of the year. In, in, uh, and and set it up quickly. That would be the other yeah. thing. Smash him out quickly, less than a round, takes basically no punches. There's nothing then to say that he just doesn't carry his training camp on through. That that fight could be set up. We're in, we're in August now. That could be set up for the end of September, start of October. You know, let, let's get it in quick. Let's see. I think know, it would December. Some... See, that's quite a long December. time away, yeah. if, if, if I'm honest. But let's, you know, let's get it done. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. That was originally the plan before White pulled out, wasn't it? Is that they said, basically, as long as AJ beat White, Wilder was next. So I can't see why there would be any deviation from that. Just two last things then, just on this. One, I think a lot of people will disregard the card uh, this weekend. It's not pay-per-view anymore. So if you weren't planning on watching it for that reason because you didn't think that White was a good enough opponent and you thought it'd be fairly easy for AJ, this is more of an incentive to watch it. I sound like fucking Eddie Hernia, don't I? Um, but it's definitely worth a watch is this card because there's a number of heavyweight fights on it as well. You've got Chisora and Gerald Washington. Chisora's got to retire soon. I feel really bad watching him fight these days. But um, so obviously he's coming back after the the Fury loss. Um, Hergovic and uh, Dempsey McKean. Now that's one to watch because Hergovic has been hyped up quite significantly. And a lot of people were hoping that AJ would be thrown in with him, which again, I feel that would be a bad idea for AJ the last time he got a, a fairly good opponent as a last minute replacement. It didn't go too well for him. And you've got Johnny Fisher and, and Harry Armstrong as well are on the undercards. Now, they're not obviously well-known names, but whenever it's heavyweight fight, you expect a knockout. So definitely worth a watch. Get Where a is beers. it? Is it in England? Yeah, I think it's the... Um, is it O2? So that's good. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I am out Saturday uh, with my mate Scott for a few beers, but... Um... 
He usually has have... to catch a train home, so um, we will probably, I'm, I may well be home for the main event to watch that or at least find a bar um, to to watch that in. Do they have um, Dazern in strip clubs? Uh, I don't know what you're trying to suggest there, that my <laughs> friend loves those kind of uh, entertainment venues. But um, yeah, I mean, we might get lucky um, and they might, but I mean, Fighting and strippers, who doesn't love that? But, exactly, um... get some chicken wings and uh, some some pints alongside it. The only other question then, so last thing on this, Dillian White, lifetime ban for you? Or God, I, I'm, We've talked about this before. I think it's the only way that you get rid of cheats. I, I, I'm a big proponent of, a, of huge bans, if not lifetime bans, for popping once. You know, third time offender. Done, done and dusted for me. That's a hat trick. I mean, I, I can't recall any boxer ever hitting three failed drug tests in their career. It's got to be done for him. I mean, he's not on. He's not exactly on. Age isn't on his his, his side anyway. He's got to be what 34, 35, if not maybe older. It's got to be a lifetime for me. He shouldn't. He shouldn't be able to box again. Wait, the argument being, I'm sure you'll agree with this. It's combat sport, and this is the type of thing where if you have one person who does something like this, and the Conor Ben situation is the same, and, and other fighters who've done this previously, you can actually cause some quite significant harm. There have been people that have died in this sport before, and any combat sport where you decide that you're going to take an unfair advantage, which is going to put the, the other fighter at such a significant disadvantage that it can cost them health-wise, I agree. I think there's only one outcome, and it's get rid of them out of that sport. You You want to take someone's life, you lose your livelihood. So, yeah. And I think we, we've talked about it before, you know, it's not a great analogy because it's not life threatening, as it were. But some of the things we've talked about that we hate to see in football, the only way to deal with them sometimes is immediate red cards. So like time wasting, some of the things we game harping back to old editions. If you saw someone taking loads of time in it, right, that's it. Bang, you're taking the piss, immediate red card. Pretty quickly, that would get stamped out. And it's exactly the same here until they start dealing with this in a far more effective manner and dishing out harsher punishments for, like you say, combat sports is different than cheating is cheating. But if you take steroids in uh, athletics, for example, to, to gain an advantage in sprinters, you know, and it makes you run quicker. So you beat someone, you know, you, you makes you ca- catch up with the opposition and you might be able to have a chance of beating Usain Bolt back in the day. Then that's one thing. But like you say, that this has potentially life-threatening consequences that you are making yourself more powerful, more threatening when you're punching someone in the face. You could kill someone and, it, as you say, lifetime banners are the, the only way to deal with it for me. Well, good time to leave it there. Nearly two hours of tapping up podcasts for people to listen to. Uh, hopefully that obviously makes up for the lack of us for the past two weeks. Um, if you ever leave again, Ian, there'll be serious repercussions. Yeah, exactly. Look at me like that. Exactly. I will tell the missus yeah. that they were never, it's ever terrified. allowed on holiday again uh, for fear <laughs> of two weeks nearly without an episode. Um, so I will, t- I will I will, get her told. Um, but um, yeah, and as I say, here's to the next 50. I can't believe the, the year's come around that quickly. Yeah. Happy birthday tapping up. Um, well done to us. And uh, well done to you lot for putting up with us for a full year. Thanks very much for listening to this week and we'll speak to you next week. 